confessions for you guys this morning before I get started. Is that okay? Wonderful. If you didn't listen to Jordan's teaching last week, go back and listen to it. It was outstanding. And I'm not saying that just because I'm her husband. Um, Well, that might be like 10 or 15% of it anyway. (laughs) But I do think that she did a fantastic job. So that's my first kind of note for you there. Um, Secondly, it will provide for you many, many more laughs than my talk will today. (laughs) Apparently, there's a little rumbling in our community that Jordan is funnier than I am. (laughs) And what you don't know is that this has been a running debate in our marriage for uh, quite a while now. So... um, You're either going to be convinced of that this morning, or I'm going to give you a run for your money. Now, what didn't help is that Friday evening, right before going to bed, she wanted me to go over my sermon with her, which doesn't happen very often. And I'm like, hold up now. Just because you taught last week, I don't need to run my notes by you, pastor, okay? Um... But she wanted to, to go over it with me, which I was like, that's great. It's wonderful. I actually needed some, some guidance to be, all, to be totally transparent and honest. Um, and a few minutes in, I'm going over my notes. I asked her a question, and she didn't respond. And I asked her, another, again, the same question. She didn't respond. It was silence. And I looked over, and she was asleep. So that's what you have to look forward to today. (laughs) I put my wife to sleep going over my my notes. Um, With that, (laughs) we are uh, at the end of our short four-week teaching series on biblical literacy called The Great Library, what the Bible is and how to read it. Has this been helpful for you over the last few weeks? I know it's been some some heavy content, Um, won't be any better today, to be honest, but um, I hope that it has been uh, foundational for you and will be foundational for us as next week we move into a slow pilgrimage through the gospel according to Matthew in a series called On the Way. And this series will last us for who knows how long. It will provide the kind of a basis for all of our teaching throughout the rest of the year and probably into next year uh, in all transparency. So this teaching provides foundation for our teaching that begins next week. And throughout this series, we have sought to answer or at least respond to four primary questions. What's the point of the Bible? What's the point of these 66 books, this library, this collection of ancient writings covering 1,500 years, dozen or so genres, and upwards of 40 authors. What's the point? The second question was, where did it come from? How is it authoritative? What does that mean? Where does that rub us in the wrong way? Why is it important? Why is it necessary? How did we get it? What's the origin? The third question that Jordan responded to last week was the question of, what does it do to us? What is the difference between reading the Bible and reading the Bible as Scripture? 
And she articulated a fundamental difference between the two. It does something to us. It forms us. And today we will conclude by asking the question, what does it mean? What does it mean? Or how does it apply? And how can it apply? Thus making our teaching today on the art and science of interpretation or hermeneutics. Get excited about hermeneutics this morning. Please don't fall asleep in Jesus' name. Now, do remember, I am no biblical scholar. I'm a pastor who cares about your transformation and direction toward practicing the way of Jesus. I care about us becoming more like Jesus and being with Jesus and doing what Jesus did. And this topic, hermeneutics or interpretation, is yet another broad and very deep field of inquiry. And part of my job, I believe, as a pastor, is to actually resource you beyond what we can provide in a sermon on Sunday morning. I I think it's imperative that we as pastors resource our community um, so that you can do more digging on your own beyond a talk on Sunday morning. So I want to provide for you real quick five resources, five books for you to consider. If you want to do a deep dive into hermeneutics and interpretation or the scriptures or the Bible or makeup of the Bible, I'm going to give you five resources that I think are very helpful for us. They've been helpful for me. And so if you would, just take a look at the screen. I'm going to walk through these very quickly. The Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. He's a New Testament scholar. It's phenomenal. Some of you have read The Blue Parakeet. It's fantastic. The second text I would recommend for you is a bit more philosophical. It's by an Oxford theologian named Amy Orr Ewing called Why Trust the Bible, where she answers uh, 10 tough questions regarding the the Bible and the scriptures. The, The third text is by Michael Bird. He's another biblical scholar called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. All these texts are relatively... Um, easy to read and uh, easy to grasp. So that's why I'm recommending them for us. You can, you can get into it and be okay. The next two texts that I have for you guys, one is by Elizabeth Mumburu. This is a newer text that I've gotten into recently that I have really, really enjoyed called African Hermeneutics. And the reason I mention this is because, in case you did not know, there are three times as many Christians on the continent of Africa as there are in North America. And I think it's important for us to consider cross-cultural understandings of the scriptures and hermeneutics and interpretation, not just through our Western, primarily Eurocentric lens. And so uh, Mumburu does a phenomenal job looking at hermeneutics through the African lens and perspective. The last text is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. This is kind of a classic text. It was a seminary text for me, but it's easy to read. It's fantastic. And we actually have that text in our bookstore, shout out, if you would like to pick it up. So five texts for you because today's talk is not going to get deep enough. I realize that. But if you want to go a little deeper, this will be a good place for you to start. Sound good? Awesome. Very good. Now, um, one of the activities that I have come to thoroughly enjoy at Christmas is Dirty Santa and white elephant parties. Does anybody just love Dirty Santa or white elephant parties? It's something about it. I I think it's just a wonderful experience. I, I truly do. It's, it's wonderful. Stealing gifts, giving gifts, not knowing what you're going to get, all the things. It's, it's wonderful. And this past year, uh, we played Dirty Santa at our staff Christmas party. And it was a lot of fun. Um, Jordan actually picked out all the gifts and wrapped them up. And you would choose 
um, your gift based on a randomly drawn riddle that she had made. These were great riddles. You would pick up the riddle, and then you'd go to the tree to pick it up. And um, it was wonderful. But what I came to realize after the fact, after Jordan confessed her sin to me, she spent a whole day at a liquidation store picking up gifts that come to find out that at the end of the day, she wanted for herself. <laughs> that if she got any of them, she would be pleased. <laughs> do any of you do that? When you're shopping for someone else, you're actually shopping for yourself. The majority of you are confessing. There's liberation flowing and freedom flowing in this place from, from that confession. In other, in other words, Jordan was buying gifts for other people with herself as the theoretical receiver. Now, let's switch to human development for a second. In our stages of human development as human beings, at as early as 18 months of age, but usually more around ages three to four, we as human beings gain what cognitive psychologists call a theory of mind. A theory of mind. We gain the ability to understand and take into account another individual's mental state. Children begin to interpret what might be reasonably going on in the mind of another human being, seeking to understand behaviors, motivations, and intentions, as well as how their behaviors as a child might impact another human being. This concept is very akin to attachment theory, and it allows for us as human persons, as we have evolved over time, to practice mutuality and interdependence, as well as survive. It's a survival mechanism to be able to somewhat predict what is going on in the mind of another human person. We might call it mind reading, but in the world of cognitive psychology, it's called a theory of mind. And it can be used selflessly or selfishly to get along in society or to get ahead. And Jordan displayed how you can use it to get ahead. The same is true for me. Uh, I'll go to the store and Jordan's like, hey, can you pick up some ice cream? I'm like, bet, I'll definitely pick up some ice cream. But I'm picking up ice cream that I know she will not like, but I will like. <laughs> Anybody else do that? Or they're like, you know, your spouse or friend or someone's like, go pick up some cookies. Okay, I'm going to pick up cookies I know you won't like, but I do, so you won't eat any of them. That is using a theory of mind for selfish gain. You have an understanding of the other person, and so you make a choice on your own by way of understanding that other person's perceptions and their interests. So, from the beginning of our development as human persons... We are endowed with the ability to interpret and predict responses of other humans. This is why if you hit someone, you usually run. Because they're probably going to hit you back. It's theory of mind. Somehow we have a shared two-way meaning of intention and behavior. 
between us without ever even verbalizing it. So, what does this have to do with interpreting the Bible? That's your question, I'm sure. If, in fact, the scriptures are a means of God disclosing himself and communicating with us, which we've come to believe that they are, when we interpret the text, we have a choice to make from the jump. A choice, a decision. Am I interpreting what I want for myself or Am I seeking to interpret what God is trying to communicate to me? Before any of the technical stuff that we'll get into today, as we approach the scriptures, as we approach the text, we must first consider our motivations and our intentions and ask, is there another subject on the other side trying to communicate with me, or am I interacting with a mute object that I bought solely for approval of my preferences? Regardless of what they are. Before we even get to the interpretation, you have to ask, what are my motivations? And what am I intending to gain from this experience? We have to take into account that the phrase, word of the Lord, or word of God, occurs almost 300 times throughout the library. The phrase, the Lord said, is another 300 times. And Jesus said, in the four gospel accounts, 120 times. Are you engaging with an object, or are you engaging with a subject? It's a fundamental question we have to ask before we get in. And some of us, if we're honest, we primarily come in with our own intentions and our own motives as the driving force, just as when we purchase gifts for people, quote-unquote, but really it's for ourselves, without considering shared meaning and mutuality between the two subjects. Often we approach the text as an I-it rather than an I-thou in the language of the philosopher Martin Buber. Scott McKnight in the Blue Parakeet says this. He says, in listening to God's words in the Bible, we are in search of more than a relationship with words on paper. We are seeking a relationship with the person who speaks on paper. Our relationship with the Bible is actually a relationship with the God of the Bible. And data has revealed this. People who have a higher view of their intimacy with God have a higher view of the scriptures. A lower view, lower view of the scriptures. It's empirically been proven at a data level. We want to emphasize that we don't ask what the Bible says. We ask what God says to us in that Bible. The difference is a difference between paper and person. And guys, this takes faith. It takes trust. I'm not negating any of that. It's not just going to happen all of a sudden where you get it. You have to place trust in this exercise. That, In fact, there is a subject on the other side engaging with you. So if there is a dialogue happening in some mysterious way, and the scriptures are a means of grace, a gift that has been given to us, as are other sacraments like Eucharist, 
communion, and baptism, where heaven and earth overlap, then we aren't just interpreting for information or facts. We've said before, the Bible is not an encyclopedia. It's not a Google search engine. We're not just interpreting for information or facts. We are interpreting in order to, if it's a communication method, to actively listen and respond to the subject on the other side. McKnight goes on to say, good reading is an act of love and therefore an act of listening. But good listening, good active listening, good loving listening is more than gathering information. It is more than just sitting around the back porch with God as we sip tea while God tells us his story. God speaks to us for a reason. McKnight calls this missional listening. In brief, God tells his story check this, so we can enter into a relationship with him, listen to him, and live out his word in our day. Now, our text in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's go back there together. Paul, mentoring and writing to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, says this, but as for you, Timothy, this is one time where you is singular, he's talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. I, find, I found it interesting, and I find it interesting, that the root word for convinced is connected to the same Greek word for faith. Pistu, pistuo and pistis are connected. Faith and convinced are connected. Now, hear me, convinced doesn't mean you have a degree of certainty. It just means that you have been persuaded with evidence. So my question for us, even before we move into the text deeper, are you convinced of what's been taught? Are you convinced of what you have learned? But keep in mind, Timothy has learned something, and he's been convinced. The goal for us is not just to learn something. The goal is to learn and become convinced. Both are required. Some of us have been convinced and we haven't learned a thing. <laughs> That's called blind faith. No one's advocating for that. And some of us have learned a lot and haven't been convinced. And that's okay. But the end goal is for both to meet. Text goes on. You have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the what? Holy scriptures, which are able. This reveals to us briefly that the scriptures are enabling. The scriptures empower us to make us specifically wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice the uh, Christocentrality here of the text. Faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are able and empowering for us to become wise for salvation. He goes on. This is a more famous little, little verse here in, in sentence. All scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired, and is useful for teaching Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The scriptures are useful. 
for these things. So that, this is key. This is a, a good picture of outcome-based education. All right? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. First of all, you also have to ask, am I a servant of God? Because if you're not a servant of God, then you're not going to be equipped by the text. If you are a servant of God, then you will be equipped by the text thoroughly. So Paul is communicating to Timothy that what you know about the scriptures isn't of primary importance. What is of primary importance is what you do with such knowledge. We call this wisdom. Teaching, training, rebuking, correcting, so that. And this unlocks a critical interpretation paradigm. Why might the scriptures be used in this manner for teaching, for correcting, for educating, for equipping? The whole arc of the story of God is of him redeeming using and shaping a covenant people to bring forth total renewal, blessing, and restorations to all of creation. So the scriptures, when applied, should help lead and form us with this end goal in mind. They don't just tell the story and point to the author. They are actually an instrument of the author in the story. They play a role in the story. Are you tracking with me? They are meant to shape and equip and form us to participate in God's story. Not just so that we can gain more information or facts. There are facts in the text. There is truth in the text. There is information in the text. But we don't just collect that information for the sake of having it. The goal is for us to be shaped, formed, molded, taught, and trained to be able to serve God in his mission in the world as a covenant people. And if we are a part of this story, this means we are characters in the story. Characters that God has a specific relational and ethical vision and design for in cooperation with the protagonist and the plot line. Why? Because we're a covenant people that God has called to use to redeem the nations, to redeem creation, to be an alternative witness, an alternative way of his goodness, justice, truth, beauty, and vision for human flourishing. We are characters. And if this is the case, if we are characters, and I believe that we are, it begs the question, what is my character? What is my character? Which the great Dallas Willard defines as what you do without having to think about it. What you do without having to think about it is your character. Did you notice the play on words there? It was subtle. 
It was subtle. We're in the story, but we also have character. You, you, you track with me? Okay, great. <laughs> and Paul is saying, I think, to Timothy, that the scriptures, keep in mind that the prefix is script, are useful for constructing our and re- renovating our character. And revealing when you are in character and when you are out of character. In the story. Which makes total sense. Half of the library, as we have articulated, is narrative. It is story. But, what I haven't shared yet, is that one-fourth is discourse. One-fourth is made up of letters or teaching or law or commands. Helping people move into the overall course or direction of the story. Now the word course can have two meanings. It can have a directional meaning, which the story has direction, or path, or a way. But course also has to do with a set of classes that we take to be instructed. And one-fourth of this library is discourse. And the point is to shape our character in this story to walk in line with the direction in which God is taking human history. So as we think about interpretation, how to read the Bible, and how it all applies to us today, two millennia later, it must be in light of this larger covenantal story of which we are being made characters in. God does not seem as though he is after whether you agree or not. But do you listen to him as he directs the story? As he directs the drama as he directs the play, do you listen to him? Not do you agree or not. Do you listen as he directs and as we engage and communicate with the subject on the other side of this text? Samuel Kunyap, who's an African theologian, he says, Scripture should not be read for the purpose of winning intellectual arguments but with an attitude of reverent obedience. I'm around some people, and they've got crazy interpretations, and that's fine. I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on. But I get around some people, and I'm just like, you're bitter, and you're arrogant. I don't care your interpretation. I'm curious to know your posture. Consider the posture of someone else who has some kind of wild interpretation, or yourself. Our posture, if we are listening, is to be one of reverent obedience. And thankfully, God is gracious and has given us the model character, being Jesus of Nazareth. Which now moves us into the technical portion of today's teaching. How should we interpret the scriptures? How do you read the Bible? Ask yourself that question. 
how do I read the Bible? What is my mode? What is my posture? What's my strategy for reading the Bible? There's different types of reading the Bible. Last week, Jordan articulated a formational approach to the scriptures, to meditate on the scriptures, to simply listen, not seeking to understand, but to just listen. Another mode of engaging the scriptures is for study, to gain intellectual understanding and curiosity while you're being formed at the heart level as well. Both are necessary. But what is your approach and how do you tend to read the Bible? So what I want to do over the next few minutes, as best I can, is to give a couple of high-level important aspects of interpretation. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the questions that you have regarding specific texts throughout the library of the scriptures. Those books I referenced earlier use various case studies to show you how to interpret the text. So I'm not going to do that. I want to provide you with basic tools to help you and to help us as we interpret the scriptures together. Okay? Here is the first important note on interpretation. And asking the question, what does it mean? The first is that Jesus is the interpretive center of the scriptures. Jesus is the interpretive center of the scriptures. We see this clearly in Luke chapter 24 as he's on the Emmaus Road. He begins to explain the Hebrew scriptures as it culminates and connects to himself. Now, I'm not arguing that you Jesusify everything. Okay? Like, Jesus is not necessarily clearly in every single story. You need to understand the story. You need to understand that context. But Jesus undergirds every bit of the story. And if the story points to Jesus, then I think Jesus should help us understand the story. This is one of the reasons why the early church, first couple hundred years in particular, quoted the Gospels more than any other book. The Gospels have a higher degree of authority. All the scriptures are authoritative, but the Gospels provide us a clear lens, a clearer lens, in how to engage all of the other 62 books or so. Jesus is the interpretive center. You can't pit Jesus against another text, but you can't ask, what does Jesus have to say about X? Well, let's consider Jesus. Because guess what? He is the one who has been and is making this new covenant people. We also have to take into account who Jesus actually was. And there's at least three identities he takes on. We've talked about this. One is king. He is Messiah. He is Christ. He is king over all of the world. That should impact our interpretation of the text. The second thing is he's savior. He's a priestly figure. He's a high priest. He offers himself to save the world. All right? He lived, he died, he was crucified for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was raised to life on the third day. He came to seek and save that which is lost. It should help us in our interpretation of the larger text. The other piece that we often forget is that Jesus was a rabbi. 
Jesus was a teacher, which means more than likely he wants to teach you something that you don't already know, or he wants to instruct you in a specific direction or way. Then more than likely is a bit different than the way in which you are going. So consider the identities that Jesus takes on as we interpret the larger scope of the text. That's the first important aspect. Jesus is the interpretive center of the whole of the library. He's like the librarian in the library, okay? (laughs) The second note for you is the social context of the passage of Scripture that you are engaging in. This includes, I'm including in this, the historical context. What's happening in history at that time? What's going on in the world? What are important events that have happened or are happening in that time? What's the cultural context? What was the culture like? What were customs? What were norms? What were symbols? One of the most important things that we have to grapple with and understand is that the Bible wasn't written to us, but was written for us. Okay? Peter is not writing to you. He's writing to a bunch of exiles who are experiencing violent persecution in the ancient world. But that text, because it's inspired and authoritative, though also human, impacts us today. It is for us. Some have articulated it as like reading someone else's mail. You ever accidentally open your neighbor's mail and you're like, crap, am I going to prison for life? That's always my first thought. You're like, oh man, it's just another American Express card they don't need, right? (laughs) You know, like we can read someone else's mail and not be to us, but we can learn something from it. Correct? I don't have to give a ton of examples, but I think we can understand that when we are reading something that's not necessarily to us, it can be for us. So we have to have that lens when we consider the context. Next little tidbit. We need to know their context and... You need to know your own context. You need to know the presuppositions that you have and that I have when you enter the text because you don't come in a blank slate. You don't. You bring a lot of baggage with you, good baggage and bad baggage to the text. Cultural norms and traditions and understandings. I get that. I think what we have to do is articulate what those are in order to get a clearer understanding. So for a long time, it was always just know their context, know their context, know their context. Yes, that is true, but you need to know yours. You need to know your context as well. Uh, Mumburu in her uh, African hermeneutics text says this. She says, examining our own worldview and context puts us in a position to recognize where our assumptions do not fit with the text. If we do not know what we are assuming, how will we even recognize when our assumptions are wrong? Just articulate the assumptions that you have as you enter in. You have to defamiliarize yourself with your culture as best as you possibly can, and it's totally impossible, but as best you can, at least articulate these things. 
as you enter into the text to gain a degree of understanding and meaning. Now, to that point, our culture that we live in, 2024, modernity, is not canon. It is not the standard. It is not the rule for all of human history. We are so quick to become ethnocentric when we read ancient texts, which is basically to say our culture is superior to that culture. We cannot standardize our culture. Matter of fact, consider the quality of life in North American context right now. Do we want to standardize our culture? Parts of it, maybe. Other parts, not so much. Why? Because culture is a mixed bag. And culture is fluid. And culture changes. You know, I've gotten around some people, some believers. And I'll be honest, they're always white. Always. White people crazy, I'm just telling you. All right? White elites in particular. Conservative or liberal, crazy. Okay? Um, I've gotten around some, and the, the, the notion is that, well, you know, times have changed since then. Our culture is different than it was back then. What are you saying? And whose culture? Oh, okay. Modern culture in the U.S., there are some texts that you will read and go, man, that, is, that seems so patriarchal and oppressive. But someone across the world in the Middle East might read the text and go, that is liberating and rather progressive. Don't assume that our culture is somehow the standard for how all other cultures throughout time should operate. Because what's going to happen is in 100 or 200 or 300 years from now, that time period is going to look at our time period and go, they were wacko, man. So we can't standardize something as fluid as our culture. Nor do we standardize the culture in which the text is in. We don't canonize the ancient culture as though it is the desired reality. That is not at all what the scriptures present. In fact, the scriptures present to us a very harsh reality. And it's as though God gets in a hazmat suit and enters into the mess and tries to redeem out of it. So, we have to avoid canonizing culture. Ancient culture and our own culture as the standard. Some people like to canonize our culture now. Some people like to say, well, let's go back to living how it was in the first century. You can't do that. First of all, you have an automobile. Okay? Right? Uh, even, even governmentally. Like, we don't live in a theocratic state, okay? We don't live in the first century. We are 21st century people, but we want to encounter the God who reveals himself through the first century and prior to, to gain clarity and understanding, all right? Another piece to this, this point is that advancement doesn't always equal flourishing. Technological advancement Educational advancement, structural advancement doesn't always equal flourishing. New knowledge doesn't always equal wisdom. Again, don't assume that because we have these advances that they are somehow uh, intrinsically good and moral. That's not necessarily the case. 
Just because we have certain ideas now doesn't necessarily mean they are good. New does not always mean right. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. There are plenty of things about the ancient culture I wish we could retrieve. And there are plenty of things about our culture now that I wish could have been present in the ancient culture. All right? If Jesus critiqued his own culture, and he does, he would critique ours as well. But what would he critique? Another point here. If your understanding or interpretation sounds like a partisan platform, then you're probably misinterpreting the text. You can't take just what your party takes and leave the rest. You better take it all. All of the text's thoughts on economics, human relations, hospitality, human sexuality, relationships, caring for the poor, violence, peace. Consider it all, friends. Consider it all. I had to mention that since it is 2024. Everyone stopped breathing for just a second. Did you feel that? Oh, God. My point exactly. The other piece, too, is interpretations aren't in neat, clean vacuums or camps. It's not like, well, this camp believes this totally, and this camp believes this totally. There is a a, a vast diversity of understanding, even in our camps today. Let's let's keep in the the political conversation real quick. Um, In our current climate, what does it mean to be conservative? What does it mean to be liberal? You're going to get a different response depending on who you ask. You ask a 20-year-old liberal, they have a thought. Ask a 65-year-old liberal, they have a thought. Ask a 70-year-old conservative. Ask a 25-year-old conservative. They're going to have different perspectives on what it means to be these two things. In other words, there's diversity of thought and tension within camps, quote-unquote. Because we can't all be lumped into clean, neat vacuums. Are you tracking with me? There are disagreements in this community. There's a core center, certainly, But there are disagreements. So interpretation is not clean. Are you following me? Okay. Very good. The other piece I would add to this is that it's probably necessary to consider the marks and the habits of first century Christians. And there's a lot of historical study to reveal what did first century Christians look like? And they weren't perfect, but let's just get an idea. People who are one generation removed from Jesus, how did they act and how did they live? The Cambridge uh, historian Larry Hurtado has done a lot of good work on five marks of the early church. Just historically looking at the early church. A couple of them. I'm going to go over them with you real quick. First is that they they were radically multi-ethnic, multicultural, radically. The second is they had a, a radical generosity towards the poor. The early church was taking care of the poor. Needs were being met. Resources were being shared communally, voluntarily, out of agape. It was a movement of people primarily on the fringes. you got to understand that in the ancient Roman world in the first century, at least, I think, roughly 70% of the Roman Empire were slaves or the low, 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 low class. It was a majority of these folks. So those are the first two pieces. The third piece is that um, the early church had a very conservative sex ethic. 
is historical. Very conservative sex ethic. Considering the ancient world was like Ibiza, do whatever you want, okay? And it was a way in which men often were dominating women, okay? So that's, that's, that's another piece to the, whole, to the whole of the story. The other piece is that there was a high view for life. They cared for infants. Infanticide was a tragedy in the first couple hundred years where infants were thrown to the road, literally. And they brought in infants and cared for them. Again, historically backed up. And then the fifth piece is that they were radically nonviolent. They took literally, turn the other cheek. Now, if you hear those five, you think to yourself, oh, I'm getting some, some, uh, some, some Democrat vibes. Or, oh, I'm getting some Republican vibes. And now you're just confused. Right? These are just marks of the early church. Okay? So, on to the third, third piece here. The third is literary context. So we understand social context, the historical and cultural. We have to understand also the literary context. When we read the scriptures, we have to read the scriptures literarily. Remember, it's divine and human. All right? There are different approaches we are to take with different books that we read. Let me give you an example of some of the books that I'm reading right now. Okay? I want you to see some of the books I'm currently reading. It's just three. There are more, but these are three texts that I'm reading right now. The first is a book called The Reciprocating Self, Human Development in Theological Perspective by Jack Balswick, Pamela King, and Kevin Reimer. Okay? This is a book kind of meshing psychology and theological perspective together in terms of stage development and human development. Okay? Anybody want to read that with me? I oh, didn't think so. Okay. Um, the second is a tween fantasy series called The Wing Feather Saga by Andrew Peterson that is wonderful. It is wonderful and doesn't take a whole lot of my brain. I am so enthralled by this little uh, Igby family, okay? And the third, uh, I'm reading with my little girl often at night before she goes to bed, and that is Giraffes Can't Dance. Anybody ever read Giraffes Can't Dance? Come on. Gerald the Giraffe. That brother can dance. I just want y'all to know. Spoiler alert. He can dance. I mean, look at him, right? Now, be honest. Are you going to approach the reciprocating self as you are Giraffes Can't Dance? Are your expectations going to be the same? No. But do we not do this when we read Psalms and then Revelation and then Matthew and then Judges? Consider the literary text, specifically the genre in which you are reading. Uh, Grant Osborne, who's a scholar, has a wonderful little resource that's called the Hermeneutical Spiral that I have for you real quick. I'm not going to go deep into it. You can look it up later. But to start at a high level... It's important to consider when you're reading the text, what is the genre I'm reading? Is it poetry? Is it law? Is it discourse? Is it history? Is it biography? Is it apocalyptic? What is the genre? Start there. And then consider how does the whole scope of the Bible speak to this issue at hand? Read the whole counsel of God. The whole of the canon. How does it speak to this, this topic? Because sometimes like, well, it says in Proverbs 14, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Take it for what it is and consider it in light of the whole, all right? Consider what testament you're in. By the way, testament means covenant, okay? Consider what covenant you're reading. Old Testament, New Testament. Consider the writer. Who is the writer? The authorial intent. What is the intent of the writer with his audience? And you can't nail it down perfectly, but you can gain at least a pretty decent understanding from the writer. 
Consider the book. Look at the larger book that you're reading. Look at the immediate section that you're in, the broader section, I should say. And then look at the immediate context around the passage. And then finally, you get to specifically the passage or words in the passage. This is part of what it means to read the text literarily and reading to gain literary context. All right? Words even. Words mean different things at different points. Take the word ball. A ball could be a round, bouncing object that you use to play a sport. It could also be a dance that you go to with someone. Or it could also be a feeling of excitement from an activity that you just engaged in with a friend. Right? Consider the word fire. Fire could have different meanings. I say that was fire all the time. In other words, I just loved whatever I just did. Or that movie or that thing was fire. It was awesome. Was it actually fire? No. But it actually was, though. <laughs> you know? It could also be a verb. Like, you know, fire the grill up or whatever. Fire can mean multiple things depending on the context. Okay? Fire could also mean you lost your job. <laughs> you know? Different meanings with the same word. So sometimes we get all tripped up with words. I'm like, just consider our own context. To be honest, we do the same types of things. Just because one word means something in this text does not mean it means the same thing in this text. All right? All right. Next piece of little information for you here, I think it's important, is everything can't be metaphor. Listen, I understand that we're, like, for a long time as a response to the rise of fundamentalism in the early 20th century, was actually, which actually was a reaction to liberal theology, which that's a whole debate we can get into another time. Um, we start reading things literally all the time. And literally and metaphorically become like, at odds. They are loaded terms and complex, and they can't be just at each other as an either-or. Okay? You, you, can't, you can't do this. Because sometimes the word literally can actually be used as metaphor. For instance, in the summer, you could say, I was out laying at the pool and I literally fried. Literally was just used as a metaphor. Or some of you, um, you're like, oh man, my phone was literally blowing up all day. Really? Are you okay? <laughs> Your face is intact. I mean, you look a little busted, but anyway. No. Literally and metaphorically, we have to be careful when we say, that's literal, that's metaphor. It's like, well, what do we mean when we say that, okay? But I will say this, not everything can be metaphor. Why is that? Because if everything is metaphor, it eliminates embodied discipleship. And if it eliminates embodied discipleship, it removes Jesus as rabbi. And if it removes Jesus as rabbi, it, it removes the ability for us to be formed into the character that God wants to form us into. If everything is metaphor, then that means nothing matters. What you do doesn't matter. Here's an example. Like a, like a director of a musical. My brother's here. My brother's a professional actor. Shout out to my brother. Professional stage actor. Um, he's about to be up near Cleveland doing a show, which is awesome. Um, but like, honestly, imagine a director going, hey, you know what, Joe? You know, Annie, whatever your names are. I don't know. I just thought of those on like, the spot. It might be a good idea for you to say those lines. It might be a good idea. Or it might be a good idea to act this way on stage. 
And then now you're like, okay, do I say the lines or do I not? And the director's like, I'm just, I'm not telling you. I'm just saying it's a good idea. Now you're confused. You're like, are you directing or are you not? Everything can't be metaphor. Okay? All right. So, the other piece to this is that when we, we, when we read a text, we have to ask, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is it describing something or is it prescribing something? And even if the text is not necessarily um, clear, we have to have the awareness that we aren't always clear either. We sometimes assume that the text is fuzzy and we're clear. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty fuzzy a lot of times. The text may be fuzzy, but sometimes it may be clear. And let's be honest, we actually struggle the most with the texts that are the most clear. We do. Another little nugget for you. The Bible says and the Bible doesn't say are both dangerous statements. The Bible says, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Bible says a lot. The Bible doesn't say, whoa, whoa, whoa. It says a lot without saying anything often. They're loaded statements, so beware of those two. And saying a lot and saying everything are different. Jesus often says a lot without saying everything. Love your enemy and deny yourself are very short statements that says a lot. Does it not? All right. Fourth piece. Let's, let's move rapidly here. Okay. Uh, interpretation is done primarily in a communal setting. Don't come up with your own individual interpretation on your own, off somewhere, with a podcast, with YouTube, and your NIV Bible. Okay? The text as we have it did not exist in the first century or the second century or the third century. Interpretation and understanding was a communal activity. This grates against our Western individualism. Well, I think the text says this. Okay, that's fine. Well, the majority of church tradition has not agreed with you. That's fine, truly. But let's just consider the communal nature. Now, also, the church has had discussions regarding certain texts through two millennia. It's not that clear. There is discussion and debate. And there is this increasing conversation regarding understanding the text. But some things are very clear. If someone comes to you and they say, you know what, I'm a believer, but I don't think Jesus actually resurrected from the grave. You're going to be like, I'm not sure you're actually a Christian. <laughs> you know, hey, I, I, I am a, I'm a Christian. I practice the way of Jesus, but Jesus was not divine. He was not God. Oh, okay. I, that's awesome. But, um, you're probably not Christian because for 2,000 years, transculturally across the world, unilaterally, Christians agree that Jesus of Nazareth was actually God incarnate. Okay? You tracking with me here? Okay, it's actually not that complex, okay? So there's some things we die for. There are certain things that we divide over. I get that. There's also aspects in which we debate, okay? And there are things we, we decide on for ourselves, okay? We have to have an awareness of these as we consider different ideas, specifically in our context today, all right? The, the next piece here is that we live in the New Testament part of the story. In the larger story, we live in the New Testament part of the story, and so we submit to the New Testament part of the story as our primary guide. Um, uh, the, the other question we can ask, and I kind of alluded to this, is this notion of reading with tradition. What has the global tradition said about a specific topic? Is there debate or is there clarity? 
and there's both. Some things are debated and have been, and some things that are very, very clear, whether we like it or not. Okay, the fifth one is flow of revelation. And some of you are like, I don't know what that even means, man. What that basically means, to try to make it simple, is, first of all, the beginning and end of the story help us interpret much of the middle. Okay? And the Bible presents the world as it is, not as it should be. And we have to consider what laws and commands and teachings loosen over time, and what laws and teachings tighten over time, as we read the whole scope. Because often, especially in the Old Testament, we get frustrated with the character of God. But one of the things we have to realize as God is operating out of the story is that sometimes God gives a provisional command. But that does that mean that is his prescribed preference? It's a provisional command. Are you tracking with me? We do this with our kids all the time. Selah, before she goes to bed, Daddy Juice. First of all, I want Selah to go to bed. I don't want any drink, Okay. Daddy, juice. No, can't do juice. But we can do water. Okay, Daddy. Okay, now we're working on something here, you know. But the provis- it's, it's very, you know, shallow and reductionist. I get it. But that's a provisional command to my little girl. I don't want her to drink anything before bed right now. I want her to go to sleep. I'm tired and you are acting a fool. It's time to go to bed. But we'll give you some water. Okay? God does the same thing throughout the scriptures. Provisional commands. All right. The last piece is this. Does my interpretation ever cost me? (laughs) Forget the technical stuff and the conclusion you come to. Does it cost you something? Does it cost you anything? Because it's cost people across the world their lives for 2,000 years. Some of you are like, you just can't stand Paul. And hear me out. I'm not Reformed. I'm not Calvinist. I'm okay to say that. My theology doesn't begin with the Pauline letters, but that joker was murdered for following Jesus. Give him some respect. Right? Okay. So, as we close out this series, and hopefully we have gained clarity to a degree, and some of you have more questions, on this ancient, divine, and human library, my greatest desire for us is that as we enter into the text, beginning next week with Matthew, that we would enter seeking and expecting encounter, an embodied, heart-burning experience with the living God. And we would, as Kwame Bediako has reminded us in this series, participate in the story. You and I are called to participate in the story. A unified story that leads to Jesus asking along the way, what is it that God is trying to communicate to me and to us? Let's pray.